Hello everyone and welcome back to Nautical Knowledge and Nonsense. It has been quite a time since I've released an episode and my apologies for that. Basically, I have been extraordinarily busy, which isn't the greatest excuse, but between a full-time job and helping my wife full-time with fixing up a house and taking care of two boys, I'm pretty swamped. And most of my free time, which is very, very, very little, by that point I'm usually not wanting to do editing or recording. So that's that's my excuse, not great. But also, I got to be honest with everyone. It, you know, this is this is a hard thing to do. Doing a podcast like this, it it is a lot of work, and unfortunately, it hasn't really built its own momentum, which is uh, you know, it's a little discouraging. So, if you'd like to support this podcast, really the best thing you can do if you're a fan of it is spread the word. Tell people about it, share your favorite episode, just get the word out there. And I'll keep doing these episodes as long as I can see that people are interested and that there's a little support. Yeah, in the long run, I dream of doing just incredible interviews. You know, I'd love to interview Russell Crowe and get his take on what it was like doing, filming Master Commander and some of the fights supposedly everybody got into. I'd love to interview the person who was piloting the ship that got wedged in the Suez Canal. I'd love to interview Captain Phillips. And I'd love to interview the, uh, you know, the pirate that survived when he was captured. And I'd love to interview the Navy SEALs that took out those pirates. Maybe all of them in the same room. Just a dream. But in the meantime, we got to start somewhere. So your support would be a huge help. In this episode, I'm killing two birds with one stone. I'm interviewing my first fisherman. And I'm also interviewing a hippie. A hippie fisherman. His name is Jim Peacock. He's a great guy. He's got some great stories, and I hope you enjoy them. So here, without further ado, is Jim Peacock, the Hippie Fisherman. Um, thank you, Jim. Thank you so much for having me here and for, for doing this interview. Uh, so... The way this interview came about was I spoke to your friend, Stephen Ladd, uh-huh. and literally right after interviewing Stephen, I mean, literally, I'm in his house, and he he's like, you got to talk to my friend Jim. Oh, man, he's got stories. I'm like, okay, I just heard some incredible stories. Folks, if you haven't listened to Stephen's episode, you should. Uh, it's pretty awesome. He he did some solo rowing, and but, but Stephen's like, oh, yeah, you want to hear stories, talk to Jim. <laughs> so, Jim, I hear you have stories. Well, yeah, I have. I've been a uh, uh, started as a fisherman uh, when I was uh, oh, a young adult uh, 25 or so and um, it just goes on and on from there many adventures Alaska um, all the way down to Puerto Vallarta Mexico the whole coast I've done a lot of sailing and up and down and other places I, I did cross the Atlantic Ocean once. On a, I was a delivery skipper from uh, Southampton, England, to the West Indies, uh, the British Virgin Island, actually Tortola, who ended up there. So oh, wow. that was a big adventure for me. <laughs> and, and when was this? Oh, this was about twenty some years ago, or oh, actually longer than that, maybe thirty five years ago. But uh, yeah, okay. that was something. <laughs> Very neat. So you you were an adult then. You were twenty five years old. You said when you properly started sailing. What got you into that? Well, I, when I was 18, coming out of high school, I uh, joined the Coast Guard, and that got me into uh, weather cutters, uh, two, 210 foot weather cutters, 
stationed in Long Beach, California, and uh, Port Angeles, Washington. They're two different boats, but same kind of boat. And uh, yeah, that did it. Four years in the Coast Guard, and I didn't get along with the military that well. I I wanted to tell myself what to do and not have somebody else do that. <laughs> and so I did. I departed from there and shuffled around for jobs for a while. And uh, what so, really got so me started on my own boats, and, and I've been pretty much self-employed on my whole life, except for I had a couple partners and a few small odd jobs here and there, but mostly I've been self-employed. Oh, my first boat was... My father was an airlines pilot, and at some point he quit flying jets, or he started flying jets, and he made more money, and somebody said, oh, buy an old boat. It's a tax write-off. And, <laughs> and he had this, he did. He bought a boat, it's a Westport charter boat, 38-foot, uh, and he wasn't using it much. And I was a young man, and what do I do? Uh, I think I'll just take that old boat out and we'll see what I can do with it. <laughs> Yeah, it was just uh, just so folks know. So when Jim says he the military didn't agree with him, or right now I'm looking across at Jim, and you're in like a Hawaiian flower T-shirt <laughs> and and uh, <laughs> you know yeah. blue jeans with holes in them, and he got this beautiful place that you have that's just covered with saline bric-a-brac. Like <laughs> it looks very non-military, <laughs> so it's pretty uh, pretty laid back yeah, and uh, yeah. pretty pretty awesome in that way. Um, all right, so you, you got a so your first boat then was just given to you, or or you just yeah, used it? Yeah, it was a family. My father owned it, and I used it, and I yeah, I did end up selling that boat and uh, turning that money into another boat. So yeah, it was my start of owning my own vessels and whatnot, and I was kind of lucky that way, but uh, it worked out pretty well. And so, you, did you live aboard this boat? I did. Yes. And where um, was this? Uh, he kept it at the Fisherman's Terminal, Seattle, and I was, well, I was just, uh, where the heck I was living. I guess I was living on Mercer Island then, where my family home was. And But uh, as soon as I started fooling with that boat, I, oh, this is a little house. I'll just move right into it. It was compact. It was like folks living in a wheelhouse, and then the rest of it was a work boat. Wow. And so it was compact. But And that, that was actually quite interesting. It was the um, mid 60s. 65, 66, like in that time of year. And of course, <laughs> there was uh, the uh, the hippie movement was in full swing in Seattle and I became part of that. And there was a whole, we called ourselves a, a hippie fishing fleet. And there was 10 or 15 young men working on their own boats. And uh, we, we formed quite a clique and we were a community. And uh, that just went into about 15 years of uh, fishing, <laughs> commercial fishing. Not It was very, I was earning a living. I was out there most of my career. I've been earning a living with a boat. And that's been my... This is great. Well, you're the first commercial fisherman I've interviewed. That's, oh, That's well, for sure. Like yeah. proper commercial fisherman. So, um, but you, you, so you, but you were doing it from, you said it was a pretty small vessel. That, that you 38 were, foot. 38 yeah. foot. So Diesel yeah. Diesel powered. Yeah. Okay. And where, where did you do the fishing? Uh, at the, my first couple of years, it was a steep learning curve. I, I, in retrospect, I should have done differently, but I, I taught myself how to fish and uh, I got involved with, of course, repairing and fixing the boat a lot. And, and uh, it took me a couple of years to really get on how to make a living. I was in the red at first year, completely in the red. I had to get a job in the winter to support my boating habits. <laughs> but uh, it went on. I actually could make a small living and it got better as my experience went on. And so I fished uh, off of uh, the coast of Washington and down in Oregon 
a little bit Northern California, but not mostly Oregon, Washington. And then about two or three years into that endeavor, I met some other fishermen who said, hey, what are you doing down there? Come on up to Alaska. And I actually followed this other couple, that's a, a man and a woman, and I followed them to Alaska. I mean, not knowing how to get there or, you know, I never thought about it much, but I just said, oh, let's go. <laughs> and that turned into another, you know, 10 years later, I was still fishing in Southeast Alaska, mostly uh, west of uh, Ketchikan on the west side of Prince of Wales Island. There was a area there that was quite good fishing and spent a lot of time there. So how did, how did that work? You said you had a small community, about 15 of you guys yeah, that, that yeah. were fishing. And then, but like they, so would they, did they follow you to Oregon or did you follow them? Or how did, how did that work? Well, it was, like, it was a loose group, but uh, yeah. And, and uh, I guess, I guess what I'm trying to figure out is so, so like, cause I, I was thinking, oh, you guys just maybe fish locally and they would come back every night, but that's not the case. It sounds like you're actually going out. And... Yeah. We would leave Puget Sound and go out to the coast. This is okay. uh, ocean fishing, not, not inland fishing. But you guys would stick together? Uh, sometimes a it was a loose group. We, we'd stay in communication with uh, radios. It was before cell phones, of course, and all that. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, sometimes we would work with a part of the group and some, another place would be working with another part of the group, but then. And we'd have codes as to if one person found fish, we didn't want to put it out in the airwaves on the radio. So we had these codes when you're talking about coffee in the morning or eggs for breakfast, or depending on what food we ate or how many fish we were catching. Okay. <laughs> it worked out pretty well. And that's and it just continued that way for a number of years. And people came and went, but it was mostly a core group of uh, close friends. And then what, what, uh, what was it like? So, I mean, because obviously the West Coast is very rugged in, in America. Um, how would it, how would it work when you're going all the way down to Oregon? Like, would you just pop into Newport? Like, like, like how, how would that work for resupplying and, and fuel? And you, you just would kind of pop in or right. in we and would, out? We would start off by uh, going into uh, a port where there was a fishing facilities, like a cold storage. And the cold storage is sold ice. We were ice boats. We would take on a ton or a ton and a half of ice and then go out fishing for eight or 10 days. And we would, as the ice melted, we'd be putting fish into the ice. And so by the time we were returned after maybe five to 10 days with our catch uh, and, and then sell it to the cold storages. And there was a cold storage in every port just about to help the fishermen, you know, sell their fish for them. Or we would sell our fish to them and they would resell them. Retail. That's fascinating. I actually, I actually didn't know how my like it sounds very migratory. What you're yeah you're yeah doing, we could so. move up and down the coast and uh, yeah uh, yeah all the different ports that we could go into there would be a fish buyer in there. <laughs> Interesting. Did uh, how many people did you work with on your on your boat? Um, usually just two. There was uh, myself and a helper, and uh, I started out hiring. Uh, it's kind of interesting, but my very first crew member was this uh, gentleman that uh, I met in Nia Bay when I first got there, and I was still fixing my boat, getting ready, and he was looking for a job, and and, and to this day, he is still, some 50 years later, we're still close friends, and he lives in this town, and we see each other regularly, so that was a long-term relationship with my very first employee, but, and then, um, yeah, later on, I I had girlfriends and, you know, like that. And they would, I would say, hey, let's go fishing. And they'd go, okay. <laughs> so, nice. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was pretty good. So you did the West Coast. You, you fished on the West Coast. You fished up in Alaska. Where, where were you in Alaska? 
The first few years I fished out of Craig, Alaska, which is uh, uh, on the, like I said, west coast of Prince of Wales. It's like west of Ketchikan. And then from there, if the fishing fell off or the fish move around, you have to, that's the trick of the fishermen. It's not so much the lures. I thought the lures are so important at first, but no, it's, you got to know where to fish and when to fish. That's way more important than what you're towing and then underwater. And this was uh, hook and line. I was trolling, like just like sport fishing, but I would have not one hook, but I would have 50 to 80 hooks out at once. And uh, so it was really a production method of uh, catching salmon on hook and line. And salmon was our primary target. We would catch uh, uh, incidental fish or like brown bombers or rockfish and uh, ling cod and halibut, but not so much as we were looking for the salmon. That was uh, the, of course, the king salmon was the biggest fish. Uh, and then there was uh, the silver salmon and um, the humpies. Those were the three species. There's five species. Two of them don't bite so well on hooks. So we were fishing for humpies, uh, which are pink salmon. Of course, king salmon and uh, the regular my brain fart here. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, it was it was good. And did um, now? How much? I'm curious. I got so many questions. So yeah. So you were doing this in the '60s, right? So yeah. two questions. One is, first of all, it are, do you sometimes feel like, oh, the kids these days they don't know. Like they have all this technology now, you know, <laughs> with fish finders, with GPS satellites, with like storm. You know, the, even even the storm weather predictions have, have it is gotten very different. Better. Yeah, it's very different now. So, so do you get a little bit of that? Oh, kids these days. They, oh no, yeah. No, no. Okay. <laughs> I, I figured I'd, I'd like to go into that maybe later. Yeah. Um, but the what I really want to know though is um, how because regulation. So there's obviously a lot more regulation now than there used to be. That sure. is that is true. There was it was quite free at, at uh, my early years of fishing. It was the, the licenses were cheap. There and anybody could get one. You could fish almost any time of the year. Although we primarily fished in the summer months, uh, and it was uh, basically almost unregulated. We didn't have to get a state license to fish. But uh, as the years went on, the regulations became more and more, and the, the number of fish were declining too. There there was. Uh, it was quite productive in the early years where it was you really had to find the right fish to, or the right area to fish in to get a good catch later on. But and eventually that's what drove me out of the business. I, I at first I thought I could do it for the rest of my life, but with all the new regulations, they kept shortening our season, and then they put poundage limits and limited entry. That came on later where there was only a number of licenses, a certain number of licenses. They weren't issuing any new ones, so you had to buy a license from a previous fisherman. And at that point, I I needed to do something else. <laughs> and that was, oh, what year was that? That was in the um, uh, mid-70s, I think, or early to mid. Uh, yeah, the mid-70s, I kind of fell out of fishing and went into, well, another boat repair. <laughs> I, was, I actually opened a small shipyard with a partner and we repaired fishing vessels because I'm not highly educated but I have a massive amount of skills acquired from all my fishing and boat repair. <laughs> and I, no regrets. I, I didn't miss college a lick. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's how that went. <laughs> all right, then. All right, then. Well, so you got to tell, tell me some fishing stories. Like, tell yeah. me about the ones that got away. Tell me about the <laughs> other fishermen. Tell, you know, tell me about the close calls. Like, like, like tell some stories, Jim. Yeah, okay. Well, let's see. They were just, you know, 
talking of fishing quite a bit. I just to just to clear the air, the biggest fish I ever caught. Now people always want to know about that. <laughs> it was actually a king salmon caught off Noyes Island in uh, southeast Alaska, and it was a seventy-two pound fish. It was a large fish. That's <laughs> bigger than most small children. <laughs> quite a bit bigger, and it was just a, a one-off. I was the only boat in the area at the time and had the right lure, and he bit, and I got him. <laughs> so, yeah, boy, storms, uh, boy, happenings, we, I've had it all. But um, Tell me about one of the worst storms you were in. What, what happened there? What, what year was that? What... Um, I didn't really encounter any bad storms. I, I was a coastal fisherman. When the weather turned bad, I would go into port or into an anchorage and, and wait it out. Mm -hmm. But it was... Uh, much later in my career, even when I started sailing, that I got, was pushing offshore farther. And and one one year, I can't remember the exact year, but I was on a, a trip to sail around Vancouver Island. And I had, I my last fishing boat was my sailboat. It was rigged up for fishing when I bought it. And I had just converted it back into a yacht with took all the fishing gear off and got sails for it. And I'd had it for a couple of years, never sailed it. So I was really anxious to go out and sail this boat. And I planned this trip to go around Vancouver Island and had kind of a very eventful uh, trip going up the inside passage up to uh, the north end of Vancouver Island, Cape Scott. And then you go around Cape Scott and you're in the ocean. That, uh, trip proceeded quite easily and normally, but I got 50, 50 or so miles offshore, a, a good wind heading south when the the wind went flat. There was very no wind. And then a, a half a day or two days later, the wind came up from the south. And uh, having enough experience, I knew that that was a good indicator there was going to be a southeast blow. And at first I could sail a little bit towards the southeast and, and make some headway, but the wind shifted from east to southeast and then it came on strong and quickly and actually got caught with my sails up. I hadn't reefed them or shortened them in time and I was out struggling with the, uh, I had the main reefed and I had the the, stay, the, the, the energy of the staysail and the mizzen up and uh, I was making progress under those two sails but the wind overcame the staysail and the uh, clue broke loose and the sail shot up the stay and got watered up at the masthead, which was, at that point, it was too rough. I was never going to retrieve it. I had to just, okay, that's what it is. It's up there, all jammed up to the top. <laughs> Were you and by then, yourself? Then, yeah. Uh, I had a... a, a a lady and her two children with me. They were young teenagers. And okay. We were on this uh, okay. summer adventure. It's like a vacation sort of, but it turned into a real <laughs> arduous trip. And uh, we did survive, of course, but the the mizzen sail had to come down just after that staysail cut loose. And I, had, I went out to struggle with it and uh, I got the sail down, but I was trying to, uh, uh, you know, tie it up on the boom and, and, and get it under control. And, the topping lift, and that's the, a line that holds the boom up. I had all the sail down, resting on the boom. Well, the topping lift became detached from the boom. And it, it was so rough at that point, I was almost lying down on the deck. I couldn't stand up anymore. And there was no lifelines. This was a 40-foot a catch, with, but there was no lifelines. I was just hanging on to all my grab rails and whatnot. And so I was crawling around deck trying to reach this line that was flying in the wind. 
And lo and behold, I dislocated a shoulder. And now I'm in a storm with a sail that's not put away and my shoulder's dislocated. And I wasn't afraid until that point. Fear set in. I said, oh my God, to heck with the deck. I'm going to leave the deck now. I had dislocated my shoulder and I was able to go down below and grab a handrail and back away from it. And oh, miraculously, it relocated and I was back in business. All right, so sore, very sore. <laughs> And so we carried on. I went out and finished putting the sails away and tidying up the deck. And, and that storm lasted for three days. It was a real blow. Uh, I had not so experienced with the West Coast. I didn't realize that there was the whole ocean moves at about two or three knots to the south. It's an ocean current. And it sails down the coast. And the wind was coming from the southeast, which was directly opposite of that. And this wave and wind action produced a sine wave of waves, huge. Uh, I, I try not to exaggerate, but they were 30 to 40 foot waves. They were not breaking, they were big round top waves, but it was a sine wave that when I was on a peak, I could look out and see thousands of peaks. And, so, yeah, and, so when you say a sine wave. You know, the shape, the, the, shape, the okay, wave, yeah. you know, that's. You know, so they, pretty they, steep. They were steep and we were going up and down rapidly but yeah. not taking on breaking. They weren't breaking like a beach. They were round top waves. There was spray blowing off because of the wind. And, uh, but it wasn't dangerous apparently because I, it was just riding up and down. And I literally in the trough, I could look up at the two peaks on either side of me. And the mast may have been taller, but not much at uh, you know a 42 foot mast or something <laughs> yeah. and that went on and on and on and we were definitely frightened for our lives but after a few hours we realized well it's still happening we we're riding it out and that's and that yeah i finally they, it did calm down after a couple of days and uh my my lady friend partner stood at the wheel doing nothing, saying the Lord's Prayer over and over. <laughs> the kids were down below barfing, <laughs> trying to hang on and stay dry because this was an older boat and the decks leaked a little bit. And so there was water in the ingress, but uh, we weren't sinking. I could pump it out. <laughs> so so the swells were coming from the southeast, right? With the wind, yes. mostly. And then what, what was your direction of, were you were underway, you were sailing. I had been sailing. I was about- So you had steerage. So 50, yeah. what, what direction were you headed? I was headed south at that time, but when I took the sails down and we were adrift, I was laying a hull. You were adrift? Adrift, yeah. You, just, you didn't have the engine on or anything? No, there was no oh point. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. The, the did engine, you have a sea anchor out? or I did not deploy a sea anchor. Do you think you could have? I could have, but I maybe I didn't even have one. I think okay. I didn't have one. Uh, and, and the boat... Uh, took a natural set so where the, the weather was approaching from the uh, stern quarter, uh, the, the bow having a cutaway forefoot blew off and the stern and the rudder had more, you know, water pressure. So it, it and it was an excellent, it, it really worked out well that way. As the uh, boat approached the peaks, the wind would catch that sail at the top of the mast and heel the boat over pretty extreme. And then when we went over the top, the spray and spume and all the water blowing off of that wave would hit the hull and blow over the decks. So the decks were not taking direct water. <laughs> and so it was a blessing. And then we'd slide off the back of the wave and go down the trough and do it again and again and again. The boat would heel over radically at the peak of the wave. And uh, 
and then slide off down into the next trough. And <laughs> oh my gosh, that's incredible! And when I figured all that out, that we were well, we were surviving. The sail out the peaked; it was not damaged. When I finally got back to a harbor, I was able to retrieve it and hook it up again. It worked fine. <laughs> It's incredible. Three days of that. Three days. I must have been exhausted. My goodness. We were we were fatigued and tired out. I was I considered myself lost, and then I got to thinking about how can I be lost? I'm in the Pacific Ocean. Someplace east of me is Vancouver Island. I think I'll just sail east now. Or oh, I motored and motor sailed. <laughs> I went directly east looking for land to figure out where I was. And I actually did not recognize the coast, not being not familiar with that coast. So I found the land and sailed south until I found a harbor and went in there and we took refuge for maybe a week and a half to, just to get over the storm thing. Yeah, it really is something when you read the old nautical charts and like they will have illustrations of the different points, you know, and the old yeah. sailors, obviously you memorized every point and what it looked like mm -hmm. for, for the very reason you're describing. Right, right, right. Which, because uh, not everybody went out with you know, you know stars. I, I mean, well, whatever. You, you, yeah, stars. I was a I was a pretty novice sailor at that point, and I actually did not have all the charts I needed. Mm. And so, I actually asked uh, a big motor yacht if I could go look at his charts. And he says, "Oh, sure, have a look at it." And I was embarrassed. I did not ask him where we were, and I couldn't find out where we were on the charts. So I said, "Oh, thank you," and left. <laughs> So, wow, so you chose... Uh, it yeah. was so. uh, actually, I, that place was on the southern tip of Nootka Island. It's called Friendly Cove. Okay, yeah. And it wasn't very relevant to anything, except historically, it was a very relevant place. There was the, the very first... It was figured out later in the historical books I've read that the very first wooden vessel built on the west coast of America was built in Friendly Cove back when the... the who was it? The... Portuguese or somebody was trading furs with China. They they didn't at that point they did not know about the inside passage. They didn't know they were on an island, and they would actually uh, trade out of Friendly Cove and sail furs trading from the Indians to Chinese, and back. And so that's a very very early point in history. And, and that's why there was a monument there. I stated all the stuff and I read up on it later, but. <laughs> It was just a small Indian village when I was there. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Still. Still. still to this day. Um, yeah, I believe it's kind of a really kind of almost abandoned now, but yeah, there there is a presence of people there now. Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's one of the things that, uh, and this, this obviously is very important for recreational boaters. It's like just know know what the currents are doing because it's not the first time. Yeah, I, I interviewed uh, an old shipmate of mine. And he described their journey south, you know, down the West Coast. And But they, it, it's almost exactly what you described, yeah. that, that kind of south or southeast, you know, wind coming and just right. hitting that current. And yeah. I was yeah. like, yeah, no wonder you were in really bad condition. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that tiny bit of current can make a oh, huge boy. difference. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if the current had been going with us, there would have been almost no waves. It would yep. just been a more a flatter, a rough but flatter ocean. And yeah, just incredible. <laughs> I mean, that's well, that's why we yeah always keeps it interesting, right? <laughs> yeah, maybe uh, when we get to the uh, there's another storm story, but it was much later in my career. <laughs> but if you want to do that now or later, sure, sure. Let's stick oh, with storms. Why not? Yeah, uh, more. So with that same boat, this is like. 25 years later, I, I am, the boat is much better condition. I am a, an experienced sailor by this time. I have a huge, huge amount of experience. I obtained a contract with the USGS for a fisheries research contract 
in, of all places, Bethel, Alaska. And if nobody has ever heard of Bethel, it is in the Bering Sea. It is some 400 miles north of the Aleutian Islands up on the mainland of Alaska. It is a companion to the Yukon River. They share the same delta. It's referred to as the YK Delta. And uh, there was a really abundant fishery going on out of Bethel and that river. The native Yupiks were fishing with gill nets up there. I, I had been buying fish on that river for several years and I'd gotten to be a river pilot. I knew how to navigate this wild river. It had never been charted, buoyed, or dredged. And so it was really a wild river with a lot of those uh, oxbow bends back and forth and uh, the, the, the cut bank on the deep side and the shallow and the fill bank on the shallow side, it was really a challenging endeavor knowing how to figure out this river. But 90 miles, I would go up this river to deliver my fish. And so later I got a contract with those contacts for this uh, research. And that was a summer long job. It, it went smoothly, I had many more adventures up there. But on the return trip, uh, I was I stayed up too long. I, usually I would try to leave Alaska in September because that's a, t a changeable time for the weather. Anything can happen. And I, by circumstances beyond my control, I stayed two weeks into September in Bethel. And I had 2,000, more than 2,000 miles to go back home. September or October? September. September. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I, you tried I, to leave usually before? I, I would, yeah. I would usually leave Alaska in the early September and you know, be down here in the okay. southern regions. <laughs> where it, and so I knew I was late in the season and I had a long, I had to cross the Gulf of Alaska to get back to, uh, you know, the state side down here. And uh, it was uneventful sailing down the river and all the way to uh, the Aleutian Islands. And I, I passed through the Aleutians in False Pass and uh, prepared to sail and I had planned to sail from False Pass to Tatouche here at the corner of Washington at the Straits of Juan de Fuca to come back to Port Townsend. And I started on that adventure knowing I was going to, it's a eight or 10 day crossing. And I knew I, I was going to get hit by a storm. And we did. I got 800 miles sailing in, in the middle of the North Pacific Ocean, a gale swept over us that was pretty severe. We didn't, well, minor damage, but not, not severe damage. We're never really threatened, but it was another two-day storm. And uh, just for the details, at one point I was lowering the sails, preparing for this blow that was coming, and I had a vang, uh, unusual vang, from the main gaff tip to the top of the mizzenmast to square up the sail while I was sailing. And that... When, as I lowered the sail, the sail flipped back and forth and it threw a loop over the mizzen mast and tied it to the top of the mast. And so I couldn't effectively lower the sail completely. It was like 20 feet above the deck. I could not go up there. It was too rough. And I couldn't lower the mainsail. It was pin tight. I had to get that sail loose. And so at one point I had my two male uh, crew members at that point, young, strong men. They were great. They did a good job. I had tied a butcher knife to a, a long uh, boat hook, about a 12 or 14 foot, and it was long enough to reach that line. And I made this long knife out of a boat hook with a butcher knife. And I had to stand on top of my wheelhouse with these young men holding me upright while I reached up to try to 
it took several hours to cut that line and get the sail down. It was absolutely mind-boggling that nothing happened worse than that. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that was a, a mini adventure within the larger adventure. <laughs> and we, uh, I changed course at that point. I, I swung with my compass from my position, which I had a GPS and a computer navigate um, plot, chart plotter. I knew where I was, and I. Off of the chart, I swung my dividers around and found the closest point to southeast was Sitka, Alaska, but I didn't want to go to Sitka, so I knew exactly where my old fishing grounds were in Noe's Island, and so it was only 50 miles farther than Sitka, so I went for that, and we both sailed and motor sailed and arrived there safely and uh, went into Craig, Alaska and recuperated a little bit and then made a normal inside passage down to Puget Sound after that. <laughs> So, yeah, yeah, that was quite a deal. Yeah, the fishing in Alaska was really something. And uh, later on, I became a fish buyer and operated larger boats. I was quite experienced at that time. And well, I mean, you said you you started out as a hippie fisherman, <laughs> right? And I, I I do want to talk about that. Like, what was that culture like? Like, what would you guys when you guys came back? I mean, I'm just picturing everybody hanging out at the dock, you know, with guitars, pretty gals yeah. sitting there, yeah, like, there some of that. smoking some interesting stuff. And... Mm, yep, some of that too. <laughs> okay, so so it was that whole culture, but yeah. with boats. Yeah, kind, of, kind of like, because you were saying you lived in Galilee, yeah, that uh, was... which still has a bit of that hippie vibe for sure. It's, oh, yeah. yeah. So Gal Galilee Harbor, or what do they call it, Galilee um yeah uh, Galilee Harbor is uh, it's it's in Sausalito in in the San Francisco Bay and yeah. and uh, or actually Richardson Bay yeah but uh, I, I spent a lot of time there and loved it I just thought it was such a good vibe and fun you know just the people from Richardson Bay would come in and people from all over would kind of come hang out yeah the Galilee Harbor is named after a, a a very famous sailing ship and that the bones of that sailing ship are right there in Galilee Harbor you can see the keel and the ribs sticking up out of the mud there's nothing left except that, but uh, the, and the the new uh, what brigantine the Matthew Turner was built off of those lines of the Galilee at at uh, one third the size. I didn't know that. And so that that's a very new replica that's now in San Francisco Bay sailing, and so that 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 was a ver the Galilee was a very famous uh, freight vessel for the with the sugar thing in Hawaii. And it sailed between San Francisco and Hawaii for many, many years on a regular basis. So it was a very famous sailing ship back in the day. And then it died in Sausalito or Richardson Bay. <laughs> so anyway, that's the backstory on that. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, so, but that culture that I experienced in Galilee was, is probably pretty similar to what you had going on even back yeah, in the sixties. Yeah. yeah. That was, <laughs> Yeah, we, we would, uh, of course, we were seasonal fishing fishermen, and we had a lot of time to hang out and fool around, and there was all that 60s stuff. I, I met one of my primary uh, partners uh, on a hippie newspaper ad. I, the fishermen, we, we didn't have too many girls down on the dock, so we had to encourage them, and there was some, one of the fellows placed an ad in the local... Uh, hippie newspaper saying, wanted girls on the docks, go fishing with these guys. And uh, I met a very nice lady and we spent a few years together uh, out of that. And so that's kind of, <laughs> yeah, that was good. That's so neat. So now was there, um, was there any, ever any animosity or rivalry with the old guard, with the, the old, like, cause 
your culture obviously very different from yeah, the fishing it, culture it, that existed. It, what it was, was that very like? different. And uh, they, we call them square heads. Well, a lot of them were, we were located at Fisherman's Terminal, Seattle, which is very close to Ballard, right? Really in Ballard almost. And of course, Ballard is famous for all the Norwegian fishermen who pioneered the whole Alaskan and West Coast fisheries uh, much earlier in the turn of the century starting. And so they were very nice people. They were a little reserved and they, they, they got used to us, but they were kind of reserved, but they were very helpful. They would, they would actually talk to us and tell us a lot about what, you know, we had questions about our boats and fishing and whatnot. And it was a, it was a good, good mix. They tolerated us and <laughs> we tolerated them. Well, that's great. Okay. So there wasn't a whole lot of no, rivalry per se. It was not, was not much. No, mutual. that's wonderful. That's yeah. great to hear. Yeah. Yeah, it was a good. Yeah, you, you know, you just I don't. I mean, I'm I'm like the worst fisherman on the planet. <laughs> like, if you want to not catch fish, bring me with you. Like, I literally, people are like, I've never. Like, every time I go out, they're like, I've, we can't believe it. Like, we're, there's no fish. Or, or I went with uh, uh, this this was in the Delaware Bay, and I went with some some crabbers. You know, some guys catching crab and stuff. And, mm-hmm. and they're just like, we've oh, we're catching nothing. I'm like, I'm sorry, it's my fault. <laughs> but. <laughs> Um, so I, so I don't know a lot about fishing, but you know, you do hear like, oh yeah, like sometimes they'll be, you know, especially with the oyster mill, like they would take yeah. shots at each other and like get oh, into fights they, all the time. And, being competitive you know, over the Very competitive. Yeah. yeah, some, yeah. Sometimes. I mean, it's hard to know where it's like, you, you might have a thousand sales where nothing happens and then one is the story you tell, but, yeah. but I, you know, who knows? There, there are several different fisheries and some of them are more competitive. The purse seiners are more competitive with each other. They have these big nets they set out and there's certain spots that are way better than others and they fight for those spots. They're not physically fight, but you know, they're maneuvering, jockeying their boats, trying to, and there's a lot of animosity between the crews, uh, different. But uh, now, as you as your fishing career continued, you said you got on bigger boats. The catches got smaller, got harder to find the fish. Like, did you feel that you were contributing to damaging the environment? Like, did did that come across to you, or that you're maybe betraying your hippie roots there? Um, did, no, not really. That at that point we felt there was, yeah, there there was. A lot of fish in the ocean still today, I, and a lot of those endangered. Call, I don't know if they're really ever endangered, but the stocks did decline. But uh, I never really felt I was hurting the environment. Okay. And uh, yeah, that experience. I, I've, I've got a story in my mind right now. If I want to tell about, I was a mentor to a young man once, and it, it worked out well for him. But that was this this young guy. This was after I retired from fishing, and I was. Um, here in Port Townsend, Shoreside, and I had a previous girlfriend come to me and she said, oh, my son's in trouble, he's in jail. And his kid had just gotten out of high school with honored grades. He was a smart kid, but he never thought about what to do with his life. He went out and did a bunch of bad things and got picked up by the police. And so I went up to and talked to the detectives and says, uh, you know, after I told him I wanted to take this young man fishing with me, he says, yeah, you can have him, bring him back in the fall for the court thing. Okay, I did that. And this kid was very glad to get out of jail. And he paid a lot of attention to me. I had to go out and I leased a boat just to show him something. I knew this kid liked to kill fish. He used to go up in the creeks with baseball bats and kill them, not fishing. He was just beating them to death on the shore. And I said, "Ah, I know what this kid wants. He wants a job. And I, I taught him how to fish. I took him out for three months and we caught fish with a, a leased boat. I wasn't making much money because I had to pay the lease off, but I did. I showed him, I talked to him and he listened. And uh, after after that time, uh, I 
he went off on his own. And I, I had told him to uh, check out all the fisheries. And the, But there's one thing that the, uh, the fisheries is a funny place. This is not actually accurate numbers, but it paints a picture. 10% of the fishermen catch 90% of the fish. And that means 90% of the fishermen are catching 10% of the fish. So you can get on a bad boat really easily. And he heard me and he remembered that. When he went out and was getting jobs on other boats, he looked for the best fisherman there was. Because I had made up, I had told him what to do because I should have done that myself. I didn't. And he learned how to fish before buying his own boat. And uh, that worked out really well for him. He, he got on a long-lying fishing boat out of Pelican. He was working on the dock, watching the fishermen for the best best fishermen, and he drill on them, and he finally got a job on one of them. He learned how to fish for several years with this man. And then I advised him, I think it's time you bought a boat now. And I helped him pick one out and modify it into the boat he wanted, a long-lying uh, black cod. It was a deep water, offshore fishing very hard fishery, a lot of work, but it paid off well. Japanese bought the, all the fish at a really good price. And he is, he was like 19 then. He is 50, 52 now, and he is a millionaire. He owns two boats. He's got a crew working his other boat. He's doing excellent. He never looked back. He went fishing. <laughs> I'm very proud of that. So I helped this young guy change his life. <laughs> That's great. That's excellent. Anyway. How would, how would that work with the Japanese? Are they bring a large ship over and you'd sell to them? Would they come into a harbor? Would Because you, you obviously aren't going over to Japan to sell fish on a no, no, no. fishing boat. We, we would de- the, uh, they would deliver into major fish ports in Alaska, uh, like uh, Cordova and um, you know, the different places where you... And then the Japanese trampers, tramp steamers would come over and pick up the frozen product and take it back. And they, they were... Yeah, they would do that. And that's how they got to Japan. It was a pretty strong fish market there. (laughs) Yeah, well, I got to see the the Tokyo fish market before it turned. Now, now I guess it's from articles I've read. It, it it's because uh, when I saw it, it was just like it was cool. It was like it, it had just become popular, so everybody kind of heard about it, and and so you. But it, but it still had the like not dank. That's the wrong way to describe it. It was just very industrial and it was very rugged and it was just like people selling fish and yeah. you know it was really cool and there's yeah. and now now i guess it's like a catered tour and it's very oh, it cleaned yeah. up they kind of cleaned it up which is too bad but but uh but they had to because there were so many tourists coming right there's right, like right, right, oh right. geez like yeah, we're gonna yeah. kill some tourists someday <laughs> so you know smart move i guess but yeah. yeah it was pretty amazing to see and uh just to see yeah you know, i don't know yeah like we're we're not i feel like in the states we're, we're often not used to seeing what our food looks like. It's just kind of our culture, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it's the coolest, one of the coolest things I ever did, we went to this, uh, this hot spring hotel resort place and they had this, uh, this amazing Japanese buffet spread out. Uh, it was all Japanese people. I think my wife and I were the only foreigners there, you know? And, <laughs> and, and, uh, and they brought out this salmon that they just, it had been sliced in half and everybody got spoons and just was spooning out this raw fish. It was so delicious. Yeah. It was amazing. Um, yeah. Wow, really cool. But yeah. but yeah, so that was, an, that's, so I've seen the end result, but this mm-hmm. is neat to hear from your perspective. Like, yeah, yeah. How, the, how it all starts. Yeah, when I was uh, buying salmon up in uh, Bethel, Alaska, the, the Japanese were involved in that too. They would send over people to handle... Uh, they were interested in the the roe, the fish eggs, 
and they sent special Japanese technicians to prepare it fresh out of the fish. And then they would box it up and ship it back to Japan. It was, a, it was their money shot. They would also, I'm not sure if they bought the fish or not, but the fish were also sold as, as food to maybe other sources, but they were really involved in the roe. They wanted the salmon roe. Yeah. And so I, I did meet a, a, quite a few of those technicians when I was up there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Ikura. That's one of my favorites, actually. Yeah. So now, yeah. Um, well, here's a question. Do you like fish? Do you oh, eat fish? Oh, yeah. My, my only regret to not being a fisherman now is I have to buy my fish like everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I don't like to fish. I have killed too many fish in my life. And when I was a fish buyer... Uh, it, it, the, the vessels got to be very large. I, I was actually up in Bethel. I was operating this uh, ex-landing craft that was 110 foot long with multiple cranes and engines. It was it had everything but beauty. It was dog ugly, but it worked so well. And we bought and delivered over a million pounds of salmon that year. It was really it was a lot of fish <laughs> from the Yupiks. They were catching, we were transporting, and then they were sold later. <laughs> so the Yupiks, that's a native tribe, I take it. Or... Yeah, the, the Yupiks are the natives up there. The, okay. Yeah. The... Forgive my ignorance. It's I, okay. I, I don't know all the, they, the tribes. Uh, they, they don't even recognize the word Eskimo, but everybody else would call them Eskimos. They're the uh, indigenous folks up there. And the, the land is quite actually fully populated. There's a, on the YK Delta, there are over 50 villages uh, between 2,000 and 5,000 each. And they're spread out all over the Delta because they're still hunting and fishing for their livelihood. So, you know, subsistence, real subsistence. This is, they're on the cash economy a little bit, but they don't know how to carry wallets. They put cash in the bottom of their pockets and smash it in there. And that's how they carry cash around. <laughs> so they're, they're halfway between subsistence and the cash economy. But um, yeah, it was very interesting. They can catch fish up there. <laughs> nice. So after your fishing career, you got into the maintenance of boats and that was your your primary job? Uh, yeah, I, uh, here in Port Townsend, I had another uh, good friend of mine, we're fishing partners, and he and I uh, were, I guess we were at the end of our fishing career, and we decided to open up a small uh, repair yard for wooden vessels. And it was in the early days of the Port Townsend uh, boating scene. There were no, nobody else was repairing commercially uh, wooden vessels. There were individuals, of course, work on their boats, but it was, uh, there was a one fiberglass boat builder. And so we opened this boat shop and it was quite a deal. It was a big deal. There wasn't hardly any employment in Port Townsend. And uh, we were, and, and the first year we had six employees. The second year we had 12. And it, this business took off. We were not businessmen. We were just young fishermen. And we stumbled through it and figured it out. And it worked. It was successful. And uh, I learned how to repair plank and frame, you know, uh, steam bent frames and uh Steam bent planks, fur planks on oak frames, and Wait, so you're saying there was no other wooden boat, there was construction no or building, or anything. yeah, there was nobody repairing wooden vessels at that time. So are you the start of like like every year? There's the famous wooden boat festival of Port Townsend. There's the yeah. the, the what's it called the, the Northwest Maritime Center. Yes, there's there's yes, the, yes, yes. the two that's happening companies now. that work at the marina that. that Focus on wooden boats. So yeah, like a lady would come in. It's very, very cool. They have a. Did you start that? I mean, like you, you were the start. <laughs> really, I'm talking I, to the start here. I, 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 I do feel that way. It's, it's not widely. Uh, it's not popular or anything. I mean, it's not like I'm. I have no notoriety about it except for the people who know me. I am. 
I am regarded as one of the original uh, wooden boat people here in Port Townsend. I, and I feel like the grandfather of the whole in Port Townsend, the wooden boat movement is huge. It is a big deal in Port Townsend these days. There are numerous repair uh, businesses with big buildings and many employees. And it is a... Uh, and it generates 25% of Jefferson County income, you know, per, you know for the whole county as, as far as volume of business goes and cash. So it is a big deal. But back in the day, it wasn't happening at all. And my partner and I, we did start it. Wow. And the, the Northwest <laughs> School of Wooden Boat Building, that was started and created by our ex-employees. And uh, they got together and said, this, this skill needs to be preserved. It's going to go away because fiberglass was king and it was it had absolutely taken over the boat world at a point wooden boat building was going to die if and i feel like i didn't do it to preserve the skill but it has been done <laughs> now there, there's well, a lot of shipwrights and uh, they have a college accredited boat school the northwest school of wooden boat building in hadlock and then later on the northwest maritime center was uh, conceived out of a group of people who had run the boat festival for a number of years, and these were my close friends and associates. Uh, Sam Connor and his wife Mary Bell were deep into it, uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, the the sail off girls were, were involved with it, and uh, yeah, <laughs> so I was on the beginning of it, and here I am. How incredible! Yeah. You go to Wooden Boat Festival every year. I I do. I, I like the dances, the music. I have in. Uh, displayed my boat once or twice, but uh, I, I got tired of that because I, I don't like to keep my boats polished. I like to keep them in working condition. And you can't be polishing brass and varnishing if you're out sailing all the time. <laughs> so <laughs> mine are not, not really rough. I keep them painted and looking nice and working, but uh, no, I, I, I do sail by with the sail buys, the schooner races. I go out and get in the way or take photographs and all that. <laughs> oh my gosh! But my uh, so my first time at the Wooden Boat Festival for Port Townsend, um, I I was the captain of Lady Washington. Oh, and good. I, we were the only square rigger out mm -hmm. there. All all the other big boats were schooners, and then of course there's hundreds of the the little boats. Yeah, and or, or I should be more polite. The the smaller the, the yachts, the, the smaller <laughs> smaller than us boats. Yeah. But I, I was I was a new captain, and so like, and I'm I'm pretty like follow orders, you know, like because like, I've been deckhand forever. So so they they hand me this map of the race route, and they're like, oh, just follow this route. I'm like, okay, no problem. So <laughs> so I head out, and and like I should have known there was a problem when I look behind me and I see none of the schooners are going <laughs> anywhere near this race route. I'm like, oh boy, this this I, I and then too late, far too late. I should have known it, but. Like far too late, I realized every single sailboat is just like converging on this race route. And there's all these little yachty boats and hundreds of them, hundreds. And I'm going right through them. Yeah. Like, this isn't good. <laughs> so it's probably the most stressful few minutes I had in my life. And so I went like, you know, like maybe a third of the way through the route just. And as soon as I could get out of it safely, I did. Yeah. But literally, I, it was actually kind of good in a way because I realized for me, at some point, it's like, okay, I, there's literally nothing I can do. I just really hope these boats don't hit me. Yeah. So yeah, I, I was just watching for boats that were like, you, you know, approaching and it would try, you know. But I was like, yeah, I just had to take this defeatist attitude of like, <laughs> okay, I will just stop my boat and I pray to God nobody hits me if, if I'm going through. But luckily, nobody did. They all avoided me. And actually, ironically, it was a schooner that almost hit me. It was one of the schooners. Oh. So at, 
after I was well outside the race route and I'm like, I'm just going to follow the schooners now, you know, and so I'm following them. And, and, but there was a schooner coming up behind me and it was, and lady has a, a big tiller. So mm-hmm. I, I wasn't on the tiller. I was, I was in front of the tiller, had a, had a Canadian a young woman on the tiller who was very good. She was a very good sailor, but I kind of glanced over my left shoulder behind, you know, my port quarter there. And I'm like, oh, I just could tell like the, it was one of those, like you, you just take a split second snapshot and you're like, right. That helms person doesn't know what they're doing. <laughs> like I could just tell, and so I, so I kind of told her. I said, "Swing the what would it have been? Uh, swing swing the tiller a little, you know, a little bit to the right." And 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 so we started turning to the the right to to yeah. to get some distance between me and that boat. Well, sure enough, as it came up on my quarter, they turned right into me. Oh, that that boat did, and oh. and luckily the captain, who was obviously the captain, took over the helm and and you know pulled us away. But I, I really honestly think had. Yeah, had yeah. I been any closer, it was a and close the encounter. Seen it, yeah. it was a close encounter. Oh, yeah, boy. so yeah, that's... so they would have actually, you know, could have possibly run into me at that point. Right, so it's like, right. Jeez, one yeah. of the risks of uh, maneuvering with a yeah. lot of well, that shows you just keep your eye open and don't make assumptions that the other guy knows what they're doing or yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. You, you don't want to read into them too much, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I had a similar experience once. I, I'm not a racer. I, I uh, <laughs> feel my boats are competitive once in a while, but actually took on a racing captain once to race my old sailboat. We did quite well that day. But when I was out in one of the, I guess maybe the classic Mariners race or something, I I, I think I have a, a mild case of dyslexia. I got screwed up so bad. I ended up, as all the boats gathered to sail across the mark on the starting line, I was bearing down. I was going downwind right through the starting line backwards. And, <laughs> and they had to disperse to let me through as, as the starting, they all sailed at me. <laughs> Because, you know, most sailboat races start to weather, and then you go to the weather mark, and then you turn and sail off on a spinnaker run or something. But I was so backwards, I think I gave up s- s- racing at that point. <laughs> it was really embarrassing. <laughs> go across the starting line backwards. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not for everybody. Yeah, that's it's for sure. Not. Yeah. yeah. And then now... Now you have a charter. So, so what was the next? Was the charter business the next phase, or um, did you have something in between the the mechanics and or the the maintenance? Uh, well, the boat, re- boat was repair. The Port Towns of Boatworks was the that was the name of our little business, mm-hmm. and uh, that lasted for about three years or so. And that was prior to my fish buying experience, and uh, so I sold my interest to my partner, and he took over the business as a solo. Uh, business guy. He, he did quite well. That business lasted for 30 years. He ended up building refrigeration equipment for vessels. He, he stopped repairing wooden boats, but uh, he is now retired also. And and another business has taken over those quarters there in the boat haven. But <laughs> it was a good run. I learned a lot. And I guess I wasn't really cut out to stay in the repair business for long because I went, I, and after that time, then I went uh, to come, become a fish buyer and operating other people's large vessels. I've done a fair amount of uh, vessel deliveries, and uh, that could lead into another story or two. I once was uh, hired to um, skipper a vessel from Southampton, England to the West Indies, and the, the rich guy flew me to England, and we worked on the vessel for uh, a month or so, and and then uh, headed, headed out of Southampton, went down around Finisterre, and uh, we went down to um, uh, past Madeira to the Canary Islands, where we stopped for a couple of weeks to refuel and reprovision. 
And then we made an Atlantic crossing in 18 days. We went the same way Columbus did, fair winds and following seas. <laughs> and uh, dropped down in latitude and then went right across. It was very smooth, uh, a wind behind us the whole way. <laughs> wow. Did he? I thought he hit the doldrums. Did he not? The Saragossa Sea and oh, maybe he did. Well, for, we, we, first we weren't actually following his. Oh, okay, okay. His <laughs> exact course. We were just going with the trade winds. Got it. Which <laughs> makes That's sense. what I meant. Okay, got it. <laughs> uh, I I never studied Columbus's course. <laughs> well, he did, he did three crossings. I'm sure. Oh, okay. I, I, I don't. I don't remember yeah. the details. It's been a while. But yeah, yeah, that worked out well. That was a real experience. I, I got this, the owner of that vessel, as soon as we got to the West Indies, he flew back to Seattle and he left me with the boat for a few weeks and I got to drive around the Caribbean for a little while. And wow. He continued, he, he brought another skipper down to take that vessel through the canal and up the West Coast again. So I that ended my tenure with that job. But um, What kind of vessel was it? It, it was a twin-engine motor yacht, about uh, 55 feet. Oh, so a baby by today's standards. Yeah, yeah. It was a, it was a, it? a smaller power boat. Yeah, had new engines in it, and the uh, the fuel was a problem. We only had about fourteen hundred gallons in its tank, so we strapped I think twenty four fuel drums to the deck, uh, twelve on a side to replenish our fuel as we went. <laughs> and that got us across with our ten percent reserve. And did you just have a hose that you would like siphon? Uh, yeah, the, we would the fuel out. We would siphon the tank empty and then take a hatchet pop holes in it, pitch it overboard, and it would sink. It would just dump the canisters afterwards. <laughs> wow. All right. Yeah. Arrived with no canisters and 10% of fuel. <laughs> Dang. Uh, wow. Yeah. yeah I, this, sp speaking of that, uh, yourself, you're a skipper. You've obviously, uh, I don't know how you acquired all your skills and information, but I'm kind of a self-taught guy. I've never really worked for another skipper uh, and so I've made a lot of mistakes and I've tried to learn from all those mistakes and, uh, and <laughs> yeah. it's been a real learning process. And that, went, that, that trip across the Atlantic taught me quite a bit about route planning and, um, you know, long distance travel is something else, you know. Yeah, I think for me with, with route planning or route planning and all that, it was... Uh... I had seen so many other people make mistakes that I'm like, okay, I'm not going to be that guy. Like, <laughs> yeah. like I'm going to study the chart. I'm going to like, I'm going to do every single, you know, my, I remember my very first uh, time as captain when I had to do a transit. Um, it, it was just a, a simple, like, well, it's, it's never simple. I mean, there's like, it, it, you know, it's down the Chehalis river from Aberdeen, Washington to Westport West for the, I don't, I don't know if we were doing pirate days or what, but but that was my first time as captain doing any sort of transit. And I, I just, I studied those charts. I called previous captains. I did all this work. And the other, the other old timer captain who was, he's like, you're all oh, sunny. Don't worry about it. It'll be fine. I'm like, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be ready. And, and I'm glad I did. I'm glad I did. And I kind of kept that, that habit, but I just seen a lot of very basic mistakes happen where, oh, yeah. where it's, it's like, I mean, and, and the one, I don't know if I've talked about, I think I've talked about this, but like the, you know, one of my very first experience on tall ships as a deckhand was when we hit the Union Pacific Railway Bridge heading down the Sacramento River Ooh, oh and out into uh, near, near San Pablo Bay. But, you know, as you head into the, the greater San Francisco Bay mm -hmm. um, prior to that. But anyway, it was, yeah, I remember looking at it even as a layman, like completely new to boats and stuff I'm like that bridge looks really low and so I, I remember turning my head it's at night you know so it's hard to tell you know size and distance sometimes but I remember saying like 
what's the height on that bridge? And the captain said, oh, according to the charts, 135 feet. And I'm like, okay, what do I know? You know, except if you look at the chart, you know, which he, he and it's a poorly designed chart. It is. Yeah. Like, like you look at it and it has this note written in magenta that you can't see at night with the red light. Like fair, you know, fair enough, sort of, except the reality is that chart shows one bridge and you look up and see two bridges. Oh, yeah. Like you better stop and figure out what that, what's going on. Yeah, and, and this what? guy did it. That's captaincy 101. Yeah. And so the I've air, done that before. Air draft. How, how, how yeah. You, you don't want to make that mistake where you're just like, Oh yeah, there's, there's, oh, there's, there's one. Oh, now there's two buoys. Huh? I wonder what yeah. that's about. I'll just go, whatever. <laughs> It'll be fine. You know, it's like, yeah. no, not necessarily. There might be a rock there. There might be a sunken vessel. That that's right. Popped. You never know. Like, yeah. Yeah. You really have to suss out your route and look for details. Uh, yeah, and know what the currents are doing. I mean, oh, as we yeah. saw, like, oh, that can make all the difference between life and death. Yeah. It's crazy. Yep. Right. But yeah, so I feel with that, I never made mistakes. But boy, there there's so many mistakes I've made over the years. I mean, some <laughs> of it just, like, what was I thinking? I try to surround myself with, with smart people. Yeah, <laughs> they'll, yeah, yeah. they'll be like, uh, Captain, are you, are you sure about this? I'm like, <laughs> no, I'm not. Just making mistakes is just tipped me out about another small adventure of one of my major mistakes and I survived but narrowly <laughs> this was with my very first boat the one I I'd acquired from my father I was a very inexperienced I was fishing off of uh, Westport uh, I'd been in Westport uh, in fact I was going in there every day to deliver my fish uh, day fishing at that point and this one day I got to be afternoon lady uh, early evening still daylight uh, it looked like we should go into port. And uh, I was close to Westport, and we finally found the outer buoy, which marks the um, path into uh, and across the Grace Harbor Bar, or the, I guess that's right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Grace it's a bar. Harbor. Oh, yeah. And uh, back into the, the marina area there. And I, I was inexperienced. I had a, tr a good chart and everything, but I was a little unsure about the crossing. And so, there, and I saw up ahead, there was another vessel, and that, look at that, they turned right into that channel, and hey, oh yeah, got the, the green on the right, uh, to starboard, and that's, that's good, okay, we, we'll just follow them in. That's a big mistake. Uh, later, <laughs> I read right return. <laughs> I learned, never follow anybody else, because you don't know what they're doing. Yep. And uh, so we got past the, the, uh, the outer buoy, and then started picking up, we were in the channel and everything, and as we proceeded in, the, the other vessel got ahead of us. I'd lost track of him. And, uh, well, the one thing I did not do was check my tide. My tide. The tide is everything on a bar crossing. It is everything. <laughs> and I did nothing. And what happened was the waves were building under us. It was, it's deathly. There were so many boats lost on bars like that. And, yes, the, the wave built up. I had my crew member steering. I was looking behind him, looking at the charts, making sure we were the lineups, the, uh, what do you call the, the markers were in line, the, uh, yeah, the uh, range markers. Range markers. Range yeah. markers. We were right on the beam. We were in the, in the right spot, but I hadn't accounted for these waves under us, and they, we were rising rapidly and then going straight down these waves. And, and my helmsman, he also was not experienced, and he got a little crosswise on this wave, and this... 38-foot ex-Westport charter boat. It was a shallow draft. It had a, a V-bow with a flat transom in the back. We broached. The boat 
absolutely spun on its nose. It, the the V bow dug in, and the stern swung around rapidly, and it heeled us over so far. I had my trolling poles that normally are forty five degrees to the horizon uh, up in the air. They were out, set out. We heeled so far, the water ripped one of my poles off. We, we went more than 45 degrees over, and that's a, almost tipping over. <laughs> that's how close we were to, what, rolling or capsizing. Yeah. It did not capsize. And I was able to, uh, oh, the teapot fell over. The wheelhouse was full of steam. I couldn't see anything. And we're, you know, careening around the ocean. I, oh, my God. I dashed out of the pilot house up. I had a flying bridge and got a hold of that wheel. I says, okay, we turned around, haven't we? We're on the face of another wave coming in behind us. I kept it right into that wave. I went about two and a half miles out to sea and dropped the anchor right in the middle of something. <laughs> Spent the night there. In the morning, we picked a good tide and came in on a calm, calm bar. And it, it was a terrible experience. It had damaged the vessel. It had, uh, we swung sideways so far, it pushed the rudder sideways, broke the skeg off the bottom, the pivot point on the rudder, and bent the rudder post sideways about 30 degrees. I was still able to steer somehow. Uh, eating breakfast that morning in the local cafe, the, all the talk was about the vessel that was lost the night before. And it turned out that vessel we followed in, they lost it. They, two people died on that vessel. And uh, that's how close I came to dying on the bar. That's what inexperience will get you and not looking at your tide book. <laughs> yeah. That was a very valuable lesson. And I've been a, a, a close companion of my tide book ever since. <laughs> very yeah. important. Yeah. And I think and, what, I think people just don't realize how quickly it can change oh, well, too. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the other thing with, yeah, the, with bar crossings. And, yeah, and some bar... bars are worse than others, obviously. Oh, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's, uh, it, it, you, you got to know about that yeah. stuff. You, you can... You can get pretty good at it when you know all the facts and you know what you're doing. I have run across almost breaking bars. There was the uh, oh, was it Winchester Bay or one of those I was I was crossing, and there was there is a channel and it was breaking on both sides of the channel at once. I could look out at the peak or at the tight spot, the shallow point. I could look out both sides and see breaking waves, but where I was, it was a smooth path because it was just a little bit deeper. And you can do things like that when you're aware and conscious of your actions <laughs> yeah i think one thing to keep in mind too because because like i you know oftentimes i would talk to the coast guard and call them up but they're often going off of a previous report mm -hmm. so they might not actually have eyes on i mean nowadays some of those channels you, you think you'd have a like a camera or you'd be able to right just right. like literally see what oh look at white freaking breaking waves <laughs> not going out now you know but but yeah, even, so even the Coast Guard reports, you got to be careful because it'll, yeah. you, like like you said, it really is about the tide charts and just knowing right. you know, high slack and, and and God, avoid that ebb. Right, <laughs> like, right. like better to have a flood. Like I would always kind of time it where I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, the it's high water, but I've got like half hour, hour more, like hours more than I need. You right, know, I'd rather right. have a little bit rough and know it's going to get better than to be like... Oh yeah. my God! Now it's now the ebb tide that'll get you. The most flood tides are good, and the, yeah, and the high and low slacks are okay. But do not be there when it yeah. when it ebbs. And neap, it, neap tides as well. Like you don't want to. Yeah. If you have a choice between the extreme tides, yeah. no, oh, yeah. you want to go more the, that mid range, the, the, the yeah. smaller tides. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, that's good times. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We had one coming in. We were coming into. It must have been Newport, and Newport doesn't 
technically it's not really a bar they don't they kind of do but not really it's yeah. a narrow channel it's pretty it's pretty small yeah but uh, but it was at night you know and some of the people hadn't done it before and so everything's always trickier at night obviously right mm-hmm. you gotta make sure you really know your buoys know what you're doing because uh, you just can't see as much but i do remember we had yeah like one of our sailors got like got like a panic attack and, and mm-hmm. i was like what what's going on like, like i wasn't used to that where you just start like they just couldn't function there's yeah. breathing, breathing too hard and so you know and some i had I, I was like what, what you know close i came to a panic attack was was diving we were talking earlier about the Tolly Moore. Oh yeah, and I did uh, I did scuba diving, and pro- yeah, that's probably really the, the closest. Well, I'm being aloft; that was scary sometimes. But I, I never panicked. It was just like I got something to do, you know. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. But the closest was I think at a night dive where we were supposed to go down to sixty feet hmm. at night, and then I ended up getting I went down about 30, 30 feet, thirty five feet, and I wasn't equalizing properly. And, uh, and, and so I told my partner, you know, there were four of us and the other two had gone down already. And, and so my partner was there and I'm like, Hey, you know, pointing my ear, like it's so good. And he's just like, okay, great. Gives me the okay symbol. I'm like, uh-uh, it just keeps going down. I'm like, oh crap. And like an idiot. I'm like, well, I'll just push through. Uh-uh. <laughs> like water pushed through my ear and I end up getting vertigo. So, so I'm at like you know, 40 feet and all of a sudden the world's spinning around. So I'm just like trying to concentrate on my depth gauge and my breathing. I'm like, oh yeah. But I could feel that, that little like, oh, this is what happens when you panic. You know, I could feel <laughs> it wanting to take over. I'm like, just concentrate on the depth, concentrate on the depth. Mm. And so it gets to 50 feet, no bottom, 55, no bottom, 60. I'm like, oh crap. <laughs> you know, oh. Get to 65. Now I'm at the deepest I've ever dove in my life. 70 feet, no bottom, 75 no bottom finally 85 feet oh. you know i like hit the bottom and it's like oh not comfortable yeah <laughs> like kind of in pain still spinning a little bit and i find the other guys they're down there and and i just remember i didn't have a compass on me but the one diver the lead person because you always pick a leader you know he's like okay how's everybody doing i'm just at this point i am waving my hand like i am not okay my ear two thumbs down he's like okay great i'm like and and then he starts heading downhill oh no and and i don't have a compass but i know one way's down and deeper the other way's uphill to where we need to go it's like grab his fin and i'm like "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh we're going uphill you know pointing uphill and he's like "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh look at the compass and and this guy always he had no direction sense so i'm just like like, he would do all he just had no direction sense i'm like no 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 your compass like he was pointing the wrong direction on the compass i'm like yeah it's uphill and he finally realizes like oh yeah it was a problem here but, but that's the closest I had to a panic attack. But yeah, 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 so we were coming in and and it's like, I don't know, just it was like, shoot, now, now we're down a person. It wasn't a big deal. Like like you only needed you know, two people to bring the boat in, really. But mm-hmm. but um, yeah, it was it was a weird, weird thing. Because yeah, we weren't, we weren't, it wasn't dangerous. 10 foot swells, not, not the end of the world, you know, I, but, but it's dark. It's, what, it's, what, I, I don't understand why you were diving with, uh, was that helping the totally more some way or, or, oh, it's just for fun. Oh, for fun. That yeah. Fun so dive. Okay. So yeah, I guess we should, be, be, yeah, I'm telling two different stories here at the same oh. time. So Lady Washington was what we were coming in at night crossing mm. where, where the gal had a little panic attack. Yeah. But the, yeah. um, uh, and I've had that happen. If, I, I guess I it's not the first time, but there's been other times where yeah. sailors have had just bizarre. Yeah, it's it's hard to know. Sometimes I mean, everybody's had different past experiences, yeah. and you know, some people are are just better at dealing with stuff than others. It seems, especially if you've had past experience. You know, yeah. 
as a kid, it tends yeah. to be like the more hard, you know, I, I, I thank the Boy Scouts for like, man, like, I probably would never go out in the woods if it weren't for the Boy Scouts, you know? I mean, yeah, but, okay. uh, but yeah, Tolly Moore's great. She was the biggest tall ship on the West Coast. Oh, boy. Un- until she went to the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so we did, it was awesome. Like we, like we did these really cool programs with the, the students. We take junior high age kids out, usually three to seven day long trips around Catalina. We, we, we go to Santa Barbara and like we hit pretty remote parts of those islands and uh, just stuff that most people don't. I mean, like how many people land on Santa Barbara Island? It's yeah. like a tiny little you know postage stamp of a thing, but it's awesome. And they have, all they have are scientists there. There's like a little... You know, a couple scientists they are like trying to replant the native grass that got wiped yeah. out by the the cows or maybe goats, the sheep. Yeah. I think they had sheep ranching on it. The family that lived there, um, yeah, pretty epic going in because you got the swells coming in. You can only do it at certain times, and and you got to be really kind of what you're doing. But uh, but yeah, so we would do stuff like that. So we go snorkeling with the kids every day. Oh, we'll take them out snorkeling, oh, yeah. teach them snorkeling. Yeah. Some of these kids have never been in the ocean, and now they're out snorkeling. Oh, and that's seeing, fantastic! Yeah, yeah. The wow. beauty of the West Coast is pretty much nothing's going to kill you essentially, unless it's a great white. So you're always you know you go down and can touch anything, and it's yeah. you know pretty much you're always safe, which was great. So yeah, yeah, pull up cre- you know th- animals for the kids to see, and uh, just love. Yeah, it was a fun. It was a neat time. Very yeah. neat. And the captain, he had a great way where he would, because because it would get old, you know, because you had instructors and then you had people that would be the deckhands and then there were, you know, other more officer responsibilities. For, for the deckhands, which I was, you would alternate between being an instructor or being a deckhand, being oh. an instructor. So you go out on a five-day voyage and, and get that experience, but then you got to be the deckhand where like, okay, now I'm operating a small boat. Now I'm doing the watches at night. Now, you know, So you had different responsibilities, and it really varied it up just enough where it never got old. Ever. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah never felt mm-hmm. it got old. Right, you didn't get into it. Yeah, and whereas unless you're really, really in love with looking at the animals or really, really in love with sailing, it's going to get old if you do it. Yeah, it's too know, much continuously. Yeah, to get, switch it out. Yeah, yeah so that was, that was great and just a f- neat boat. Like really mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. Yeah. I've yeah. never been aboard the Tollymore. I've seen pictures of it and had uh, my friend Wayne talk about it quite a bit. He spent a bunch of time re-rigging it once. That was, he's really proud of that job. Oh, well, he, and Wayne was great. I got to meet Wayne. Yeah. So, so we had a, a, a maintenance uh, period where we actually chopped out our, uh, we, had to, we had to pull the mast out because uh, the mast step had basically gotten rusted. Oh, yeah. Like it was starting to rust through. And we were t- cutting out huge chunks of steel on the boat, like huge, you know, the deck had, there were parts that were rusted right. over some of the aluminum. Um, anyway, and so so I was doing that because I turns out I'm good at cutting metal. I didn't know that. Like I was like, they were like, yeah, you only work four times as fast as this other guy. I'm like, sweet. So I guess they got me cutting metal all winter. Um, and then another fellow injured his hand. He just he tried to stop his uh, his hand with. Or he used his hand to try to stop the cutter. Oh. The the the, the uh, oh my god, blanking <laughs> the uh, the grinder. Uh, which you don't do. Don't do that. Yeah, don't so do that. Because he ripped his hand right open. But uh, but he... Anyway, so yeah, so we were there and I got to meet Wayne. I got to meet his daughter. Uh, nausea. Both in nausea. Yeah, both great riggers. Uh, the daughter had a brown eye. One of her eyes was... I forget what color it was. If it was green or, or yellow, I can't remember. But she had one of her eyes was dark brown from a... I think it was a marlin spike. Yeah, she was it a marlin spike? Pretty badly injured there. Can she still see her? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, to my knowledge, her vision was fine. Wow. Because I, mean, I talked to her a little bit about it. It was really cool. I mean, she had two different colors. Yeah. So that's kind of kind of cool. And she wasn't, you know, shy about it or anything. Oh. She, was, she was okay talking about it. Yeah. So I think yeah. I think she'd be okay with us talking about it. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it was really cool. Very knowledgeable rigger. She was, um, when I met her, she would have been, I forget how old. She was young. Yeah, me. yeah. She's a young girl. Yeah. But then uh, Wayne was great. And I, I, <laughs> I remember, because I did get to, I must have had to work with Wayne up a lot briefly. So I wasn't just cutting steel. But he, uh, I remember he'd only use anchor bins. He's like, the anchor bin's the greatest <laughs> knot ever. Just, just, I was like, what, what knot? Because I'm trying to like learn, you know, the inside information. He's like, what knot are you using here? Anchor bin. Anchor bin. Okay. And what knot are you using to tie up this gear while you're doing anchor bin? It's like, <laughs> w- really? He's like, yeah, it's the greatest knot ever. Just, just tie an anchor bin. Yeah, like, it's yeah. easy to untie. It's, it's secure. It's, it's like, all right. <laughs> so, yeah. so I learned the anchor bin. I was like, <laughs> maybe that's it's pretty funny. Yeah, the knot works fun. I acquired quite a bit of knot skills. I like t- teaching knots. I got a few trick knots and this and that. And oh, fun. man, you're going to have to teach me. Yeah. You're going to have to teach me after well, this. Yeah, after the podcast, I'll show you yeah, a couple. Please, please, please. <laughs> teach me to teach. I don't think I'm too old to learn new tricks, I hope. Oh, <laughs> no, no. They're... My brain's starting to get... You can tell you gotta, it. You gotta, knot tying, you got to teach your hands how to do it. You, yeah. you could explain them, but you will never learn them unless you do them. And that's yeah. the whole thing about knot tying. You get your fingers to doing it, and then they all repeat themselves. Muscle, muscle memory. <laughs> Yeah. 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 Very good. Very, very good. Yeah. Well, uh, interesting fact about Wayne. Uh, I uh, Later in my career, I have this uh, uh, other sailboat called the uh, Sea Wolf. And uh, Wayne got involved with this uh, group of circus people called the Chautauqua. And uh, the gang running the Chautauqua, they, one fellow had a sailboat and he wanted to do an aqua Chautauqua. And so Wayne got involved in that. And then he asked me if I would get involved and. I had two sailboats in the water at that time, and I volunteered both of them. Got another skipper to run one, and I ran one. And we toured all through the, the San Juan Islands and up into BC, and we stopped at, it was all pre-planned and it was very organized, and we'd stop at these communities and put on a circus show. There was about 35 people. They had everything, the brass band, the clowns, the high wire or rope axe, and no animals, everything but the animals. And it was a lot of fun having we were transporting them. They didn't live on our boats. We'd, they'd camp out when we got to these locations. But we were transporting from place to place by boat. And that lasted about three weeks or something like that. And ended up with a, a big show back here in Port Townsend at the end of the trip. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> it's too bad you didn't, you didn't have any dolphins or seals or anything. Like, no, that'd that, be amazing if you had like, <laughs> some trained dolphins and seals that could do flips over the boat. Yeah. And, yeah. Oh, fun. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's cool, though. So you had... Mm. So the circus performers lived on board? Uh, Well... Or they transited with you? We transited. They would camp ashore. They would have all the camping gear and everything like that. Well, they'd have to train as well. I mean, I have to... Yeah. We had one 80-foot supply boat that carried all their big things, you know, all the the equipment that they needed and everything like that. So, yeah, it was just a a very interesting experience. How successful was it? Because I've never heard of that before or... Uh, was it one of those being never done this before since? Chautauqua thing is a term that for um, uh, before television and radio, there the uh, uh, Chautauqua was a very popular form of entertainment for people, and people, politicians would uh, you know pitch their things at Chautauqua. There was a snake oil salesman and all that, and it was back in the turn of the century, and now there's uh, the Chautauqua was a group of people entertainers. And, but there's only one left, and it's this group that hangs out in Port Townsend now, and they travel by bus most of the time to small communities and put on circus shows. And so that's it's kind of a throwback, and it's kind of like a, a summer camp for circus people. <laughs> but they're still performing. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> anyway, that was a good experience. And 
Yeah, so my my newer boat, the Sea Wolf, is a is a interesting vessel. It was uh, built by Evergreen State College in ni- launched 1980, and the state of Washington owned it for 27 years as a teaching aid at the college. They finally quit their maritime programs, and I was fortunate enough to buy this boat at auction at a very reasonable price. They were more concerned with having an owner who could take care of it than they were with the money. And uh, they didn't give it to me, but it was reasonable. (laughs) And now I've had, I've owned that boat for about uh, 15 or 16 years now and have been, I'm a license, I got a hundred ton license and I've been chartering for about 15 years now. And that's, it's making, it pays for the boat and some profit. I'm not making a killing on it, but it's a lot of fun. I'm able to share my sailing skills and, uh, keep the public entertained those I get a, a lot of bridesmaids parties and birthday parties and funeral parties and <laughs> I could throw the ashes out and all that stuff and it's a lot of fun so I'm just about ready to retire from that business now but uh, it's getting a little old like you said one thing after another <laughs> it's a routine I, I do enjoy the people but I've had so many day sales in Port Townsend Bay I cannot count them <laughs> sometimes two a day about maybe eight or 10 a month, and it's quite a, quite a deal. Wow. <laughs> anyway. Now, I got to ask you, how, how do you know Stephen, Stephen Ladd? How did you guys meet? I first met Steve at one of the wooden boat festivals. I, I didn't really talk to him much. I kind of introduced myself, and I thought he was kind of a funny guy, and what a foolish crew. So I didn't really think about it too much or what he was doing. I, was, I had a bigger boat, and oh, that was little boats. He had his little boat on display. It was on a trailer there on the beach. It's called Squeak. It's about, what, 12 foot long. And I thought it was the silliest thing ever. And then I didn't see him for a long time. And through another mutual friend, who are, my wife and I have these best friends. They're about our age. We're old people. And it turns out that this fellow knew Steve Ladd from high school days or something. And Steve is much younger than we are. He's, he's in his, now he's in his early 60s and oh, I'm in my 70s. And uh, through uh, this other connection, I met Steve uh, socially. And I, and he started talking about his experience. I thought, oh, wow, I, I met you. I knew you from that boat festival. Said, yeah, yeah, I was there. <laughs> and it turned out that, uh, yeah, we're good friends now. We go out and do things. Recently, we... Drove down to San Francisco for the Master Mariners race and uh, got to witness that from another sailboat friend down there. For another friend from Galilee Harbor took us out sailing and drove back home. It was excellent, and you know, we go camping together sometimes. It's uh, Steve's a good guy, and he's such a normal, ordinary kind of guy. He's not an extrovert at all, except in the things he does, <laughs> <laughs> and they're amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He drives a motorcycle and. Uh, He's had one motorcycle, well, for the last 25 years or so. He drives this nice yellow BMW. <laughs> so, yeah, what a guy. That's amazing. So, well, well now, if, if you retire from the chartering, what's your plan? Do you have a plan? Um, no, it's not really fixed or, yeah, it's, you know, I'm... Uh, <laughs> stay, staying alive. Stay alive. Okay, that's a good plan. That's a good plan. Uh, this coming birthday in March, I'll be 80 years old. And oh, wow. uh, okay. so I'm, you know, I'm slowing down a little bit, but I'm still boating, and I probably will for as long as I can. <laughs> yeah, oh. my wife and I plan to go a little bit of traveling and whatnot. That's, that's, I haven't got any grandiose plans yet. I, I, I've never really taken a really long distance voyage. I have not planned to sail around the world. I have not sailed to the South Seas, but uh, 
I might sail to Hawaii someday soon. It's only uh, you know, eight or 10 days or 18 days or however you do it. Maybe 20 days <laughs> if you get lost. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be yachting for a while on my own, for, you know, friends and family for a while. <laughs> Well, All right. Well, Jim, are there are any last stories I, I, that you'd like to share or anything that, uh, anything mm, at all? Oh, boy. We've covered up quite a ground here back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> I I think we've done it. I don't know. Yeah. It's been, it's really nice getting to know you, Johanna. Yeah. 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 <laughs> this has been good. Well, it's, it's, it's a neat, small world. And, and uh, I, had, I had no idea. I mean, I, going to this interview, folks, I literally had no clue. Yeah. Anything about Jim beyond that he's got some stories. So, and it turns out you started the whole wooden boat phenomenon in Port Townsend. That's incredible. Well, uh, me and my other cohorts back in the day, I was not single-handedly. I was just part yeah. of a group. But yeah, it was, I was back there then. It shows you how good ideas can just grow. Yeah. Know? Yeah. They really can. And they can also die out too, if you don't have good leadership and, and good continuity. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, uh, yeah. but they can definitely grow. I feel like we're in an era right now where we just need more of that. You know, I feel like everybody's just looking for something, and yeah, this is this and is it's, a, yeah. We're in a very very odd times of change now, and it's hard to see the future other than you know, electric vehicles and the internet and you know, digital bites. Oh boy, that's the future. But uh, yeah, I, I worry about see. the youth. You know, we mentioned it while we were getting to know each other about how today you wonder if the youth can do anything other than play with their cell phones. <laughs> but, and I do. I like to. I like to share my skills and. I've got uh, a large extended family, and most of them know how to sail well. I, I have a son who's uh, 47 now, and he's not that interested in sailing, but he's good at it. He can do it. He takes my boat out without me a few times a year, and uh, I was really happy about that. And this is not his total passion, but uh, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, there you go. So if you're young and you're on your phone right now listening to this, that's okay. Yeah. We're, we're glad you're listening to the podcast. Now, turn off your darn phone. And go out, find a boat, find a yacht, you know, find a yacht club or something to get a get a log, get a nice safe log and <laughs> get out in the water. Hang out at the marinas and there was a lot of skippers that need crew. You just have to go up and down the docks and ask them and they'll, they'll take you out. And honestly, if you're, unless you're completely inept like completely yeah. like 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 probably i would imagine there'd be actually people working on boats that would be like shoot i really like like i know the other day i was helping out uh my wife working on a ship and she's like i need help like i can't do this run by yeah. myself period it's impossible yeah and so i, I was helping her and like yeah you were right like this is 100 percent. like no <laughs> single human could have figured this one out so, yeah yeah <laughs> but two people bam. so you never know like you might be able to help somebody and mm -hmm. you know that that could be just the start of something right, you'd be helping somebody else either go someplace or just with a rig and how to handle the sails and you know it's... next thing you know you're learning new skills and you're you're no longer having anxiety or whatever panic attacks and crap like <laughs> it is it's a, it's a very relaxing when I start a charter, it's very busy for the first 25 minutes. And as soon as the sail's set and the engine's off, kick back and relax. It's easy. It's easy. It's very relaxing. And people, I encourage people to bring beer and wine and sandwiches and uh, picnic lunch. <laughs> All right. They really, really have a good time. <laughs> All right. So after listening to this podcast and spreading the word about it, folks, get out there and <laughs> turn your phones off. Check it out. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you, Jim. Thank well, you very much for taking the time to do this. Thank I, you, Johan. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, so folks out there, 
Uh, thank you for listening. I hope you can support the podcast. Uh, check out my kids' book if you get a chance. Check out your local yacht club. Find a mariner that needs help and, and help him out. Also, oh yeah, check out your local tall ship if you got one nearby. Go pay them a visit and uh, be safe out there. For goodness sakes, if you're going to cross a bar, check the tides, check the tides and know what they mean. Yes. Know what they mean. <laughs> Uh, yeah, don't be that person that, that that's that's not how you want to go. It's not, <laughs> there are better ways to go in this world. So, uh, anyway, be safe out there, folks, and wishing everybody out there fair winds and a following sea. Bye-bye.